All right, we'll just have a quick word of prayer and then we'll get into the word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is to sing unto you and to sing those truths that you are indeed strong and kind. We thank you, Lord, that you are a risen Saviour. We thank you, Lord, that you are a Saviour that loves us with an everlasting love. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us. And Lord, as we think about you, we want to exalt you. We want to lift your name on high. We want to magnify you, Lord, for it is truly all about you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been away in Sunderland this week and up at a conference called Reach. And Reach is designed to help uh, young people share their faith. It's an evangelistic conference where they um, stay from Tuesday to Friday. And they get some uh, practical teaching during the day. Then in the afternoon they go out into the streets of Sunderland and share the gospel, hand out tracts, uh, get into conversations and learn to share their faith. And so I've been up speaking at the evening services there. And my, my topic and theme was, what's it all about? And, uh, you know, so I thought, well, well, it's a good thing to be really focusing ourselves on this and, and thinking about this. What is it all about? What is it all about? And, and this was a series of messages over, over three days, so I am going to condense it down for you and uh, just share uh, what I shared with those, those uh, youngsters in Sunderland because I think it's, it's applicable absolutely for us all, no matter what age, uh, that we have our focus in the right place. And so the question we're going to be thinking about this morning is, what's it all about? I don't know if any of you, some of you might be familiar with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know anything about that? If you've seen the, the TV show, read the book or whatever, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, these group of super intelligent aliens commission uh, a supercomputer to look into the question, uh, the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. So this computer is called Deep Thought. And Deep Thought is, is built to go on this mission, to, to really come up with the answer to what's it all about. Seven and a half million years, uh, the computer works away, and at the end of it, it comes out with the answer is, it's all about the number 42. For those of you that are a bit older, I don't know if you remember, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say here, don't you? <laughs> the 60s song, Alfie, do you remember Alfie? Yeah, you remember the, the, the line of it? What's it all about, Alfie? Here's, here's, here's uh, some of the lyrics. What's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about when you sort it out, Alfie? And if you read the rest of those lyrics, Alfie doesn't know what it's all about. He doesn't give an answer to what it's all about. The supercomputer, Deep Thought, couldn't give an answer to what it's all about. Um, there's a story told of uh, a taxi driver, a cabbie, London cabbie, who had the famed of his day, atheist Bertrand Russell. And he, you know, he's a, a tremendous influence on atheistic thinkers and philosophical thinkers today, not in a good sense. And, but he was an atheist. And uh, the cabbie realized that who he had with him in his taxi, such was this man's fame in the day. And he thought, to himself, well, if I've got the chief philosopher of the day, the, the, the great mind of the day, I'm going to ask him a question. So the cabbie said, what's it all about, Bertrand? And do you know what? Bertrand couldn't give him an answer. 
He couldn't give him an answer. You see, humanity has struggled with this question and fought to find the answer to this question in all sorts of means, by all sorts of ways, and all sorts of areas. What's it all about? Because the world does want to know what's it all about. The human heart is programmed to ask these questions, to think about where we are. That's the difference between us between humankind and the animal kind. You know, I have a dog at home that's sitting there in the heat, and no, at no point is that dog thinking, what's it all about? Why am I here? What's my purpose? It's just sitting at the door going, there's nobody here. But humans are programmed to think about it. And, and the unsafe world, the unregenerate uh, human being, uh, have, they've gone about and gone all down silly sorts of paths to find out the answer to what's it all about and come up with all sorts of silly answers. But that's okay. That's okay. What do you mean it's okay, Pastor? It's okay because the unregenerate person, the unregenerate soul, those that do not have a connection with God, that have had the revelation of God and the illumination of God, can't answer the question what it's all about. Because there is no answer to the question of what it is all about outside of God. Period. Full stop. So when the world comes up with, it's all about the number 42, or, you know, starts to write songs about, you know, well, it's all about the here and now, and, and all that sort of stuff, they're only doing what they know to do. They have no capability of anywhere else. You say, well, can't they, can't they look at God and see what it's all about? Not unless they're regenerate. They can look at God and say, I need to be saved, that I don't know what it's all about, that I am a sinner, a lost in my sins, separated from God. I have no way back to him by any means other than the means he has provided through the shed blood of his Son. And then you can get to know what it's all about. As the Spirit of God and the Word of God illuminates you to the truths of what it's all about. And at times as a Christian, you know, you go down that path and you start to see what it's all about. And you, you should see. And that's my point. The world doesn't know what it's all about and that's okay because they can't know what it's all about. But I don't want to talk about the world this morning. I want to talk about the church. Because the church, the born-again believers that are set apart, set in God's elect body, should know what it's all about. We should know what it's all about. We don't have the excuse that we're blinded by the God of this world. We don't have the excuse that we don't have any instruction from God or any education from God as to what it's all about. It's all in his book, in his revealed, inspired, authoritative Word. The church should know what it's all about. But, and here's the but, we live in a church age where actually very few uh, actually know what it's all about in the church. We live in an age where um, people have come to the place where they don't actually know where they fit in in the body of Christ. They don't know where they fit in and how their salvation is meant to work itself out in their lives. They don't know the questions, uh, the answers to the questions that the world are asking. What about evil in the world? And some Christians will come along and they will, well, I don't actually really know the answer to that. You know, we were going out with the, with the teens and, and uh, evangelizing and there was questions coming back from the people that we were having conversations with. And I was thinking, I was thinking, some of the questions were really good. I was thinking, how many, how many people in the church would actually be able to answer that question? And you say, well, the question answering is reserved for, for pastors. 
I, I don't think the Bible says that it's reserved for pastors. I don't think there's a clause that we're to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Us. Corporate body. But if you don't know what it's all about, you're not going to be able to answer those questions. I had the privilege, I don't know, the Lord points me in the direction uh, of the Jehovah's Witnesses, but as, as we were giving out leaflets, Caden would give out a leaflet to these two ladies that were sitting on, on, on the bench. And they came back and said, oh, we've got some literature of our own. And I thought, oh, that's, that's good. So I moved in at this point to see what said literature was. And of course it was Watchtower literature. So again, we had we we went into all the, the went through it, started to talk with them and try and love them and tell them about truth and and what salvation is and you can know you have a home in heaven. And the thing is, they don't know what it's all about. They don't. They don't. But we should. We should. So, what is it all about? Well, I'm going to give you one negative, negative and two positives. The first thing that I want you to, to get this warning, all of us, from, from, from the youngest to the oldest. Here's what it's not about. It's not about us. It's not about us. It's not about us. You ever heard the phrase that the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist? I want to say to you, he pulled a greater trick than that. I want to say this morning that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that it was all about them. It's not that it didn't exist. The greatest trick he ever pulled was convincing humanity that it was all about us. Where did that happen? Right at the beginning. Let's go there. Genesis chapter number 3. This is where it all went wrong. When the devil came in, the serpent, the devious, deceitful one, the father of lies, came in started to mess about with God's people, sowed the seed. Verse 5, Genesis 3. Remember, God has given the commandment in Genesis 2.17. You can do anything you want, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stay away from it. Genesis 3, verse 5. Well, let's pick up in verse 4, actually. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know in the day ye. So, again, it's focusing on her. Eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. This is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. He came into the ear of our first parents and said to them, It's all about you. God is holding back from you. You deserve much better than this. God has took the best and kept it from you. And you can be like God's. You know, serve yourself, not God. Ignore what he says and think about you. Put you first. You're number one. It's all about you. And Eve swallowed it, literally. Adam swallowed the lie, went with it, that it was all about us. And from that point on, humanity went on a path where we lived that lie to its fullest, that it's all about us. You know, when you read on in, in Genesis, and we, we don't have the time to, to go there, but when you read on, you're going to see that when it's about us, we separate God 
away from God and we move further away from God and you see as the fall goes on they're just concerned about themselves we are naked we are ashamed us, us, us and so it's gone on throughout humanity and that voice still echoes today more loudly I think than probably ever before that voice where that record like it's been on loop where the devil has said it's all about you has been playing through the ages. And he hasn't changed the record. He hasn't put another one on because this is the one that has the most success. The one he told at the start, the trick he played at the start, is bearing fruit from generation to generation to generation to today. We get to today, right here, right now, and you know we joke about millennials, we joke about the generation, but it is the entitled generation. It is the generation that is the living epitome of it's all about us. For those of you in the workplace that are starting to get students through of any elk, you'll see this mentality. It's being taught. It's being promoted. But it's a lie from the beginning. It's a lie from the devil. And God's people should know better. The world's people know no better. But God's people should know better. Why? Because we've been warned about this. Turn to 1 John with me, please. 1 John, chapter 2. Verse 15 to 17. We're told what they expect from the world. 1 John 2, verse 15. John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That's the warning we have from John. Love not the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. No man can serve two masters. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The warning there is of the lure of the world. We're warned about the love of the world, verse 15. We're warned about the lure of the world, verse 16. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Then verse 17, John warns us about the length of the world. And the world passes away, the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So we are warned about love in the world. We're warned about the lures of the world and we're warned that the world is not an eternal thing, if you like. It's going to pass away. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, new conditions. But the here and now is temporal. It's temporal. It's going to pass away. And we're warned about it. And when you go back to the garden, back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, we're going to see that these warnings are played out. The lure of the world was there at the beginning. And that's what the devil was sowing. And he's still sowing it today. So the first warning we give from, uh, in terms of the lure of the world is the lust of the flesh. So look at verse 6 of Genesis 3. And it says, After Satan had sowed the lie. It said, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh at play. She says, and it was pleasant to the eyes. What's that? That's the lust of the eyes. And she took the fruit thereof and did eat and give. Why? Because it's a tree to be desired to make one wise. What's that? It's the pride of life. All those lures that were warned about in the New Testament 
And we're New Testament believers, we're Christians of the church age, we're warned about it. It's just John, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, repeating what happened in the garden and saying, don't follow the example of our first parents. Be warned about these things. The devil isn't, uh, he's not an innovator, I'll give him that. He just doesn't need to be. It's the same old thing that haunts us today, that we can't get past this ourselves and our lusts of the flesh, our lust of the eyes and our pride. It pulls us down all the time. The world can do it, but the people of God should know better. We're not to follow the example of our first parents. We're to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter number 4 with me. And we're going to see a rerun of the garden. We're going to see a rerun of the garden. Matthew 4, verse number 3. Here we see Jesus, who's at the start of his ministry, is led away. Verse 3, And when the tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones may be made bread. What's happening here? Jesus has been tempted with the lust of the flesh. It's the same. It's a rerun. It's a rerun. Verse 5, And the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give the angels charge concerning thee. What's this? This is the pride of life at play. You're the Son of God. You can do this and God will save you. Pride. It's the same test. Verse 8, Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and said unto him, All these things will I give thee if they will fall down and worship me. What's that? Lost of the eyes. It's the same test all the way through. Uh, you know, it's different package, but same underlying test. And we know that the Lord Jesus every time points to the Father. What does he say, basically? It's not about me. Now, Jesus in his temptation, qualifying his ministry, yes. But the more and more I look at the life of Christ, it's not that that the cross is a secondary thing, absolutely not, it's primary. But nearly on a level playing field is how much Jesus is teaching us as the church, each and every step, how we are to handle, how we're to walk, how we're to act and think and behave. And here Jesus teaches us this primary lesson that it's not about us. Here's the Son of God that could claim it was all about him. But actually, in his incarnation, as he walked in flesh, it was to fulfill the will of the Father perfectly. He was always in obedience to the Heavenly Father, showing us the example that it's not about us, showing us the example that we have to die to ourselves if we're to live out the Christian life. can't be about us. It can't be about us. And the Lord Jesus teaches it clearly here. It's not about him. And he points to God the Father. And, you know, he does the will of God. And what an example he has set him for us to die to self. Now I want to take you to the close of Jesus' ministry. I want to take you to the Garden of Gethsemane. Turn with me to Matthew 26 and verse 37. Because Jesus, in the initial testing... Passed because he died to self. 
He was willing to die to self. He was willing to realize it's not about me. Now we get to the tail end of, of his ministry. We get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And here Jesus is at his most vulnerable. This is the intense moment of intense pressure. More intense than 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. The attempted of the devil before those temptations that we've read about. This is Jesus, verse uh, 38. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. This is the pressure of what lies before him in the fulfilling of the Father's will. Verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will. What is he teaching us? Perfect obedience to the heavenly Father. But what I want to say to you, that Jesus could have never passed this test where he was to go and die for others until he passed the first test where he was willing to die to self. And that is the great lesson at the bookends of Christ's earthly ministry, that he passed the temptation to think of himself. He realized it wasn't about him, it was about the Heavenly Father, it was about the redeemed of the Lord. And at the tail end of his ministry, he was able to die for others, not just to himself, but for others. Church, if you're not willing to live a sacrificial life where it's not about you, then you'll never be able to live a sacrificial life for others because you will always get in the way. You'll always put you first. And sometimes God wants you to do things where you have to put the other person way above you. To do that, you've got to die to self. To be willing to die for others. What a lesson the Lord Jesus Christ taught us. The essential truth taught by the Master is it's not about us. So if it's not about us, what it is, what is it about? Well, it's about the church. It's about the church. It's about the local church. Let me read this sentence to you, this paragraph, see if it makes any sense. A seashore is a better place than the street. Because you need lots of room. At first it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It may take some skill. But it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose. You won't get another chance. Now did any of that make sense? Did anybody? No. Let me give you a little word of context. Kite. Let me read it again. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags it can be very peaceful but if it breaks loose you won't get another chance. Make sense now? Yeah, of course it does. Why? Because you've got the context. You've got the context. 
You've got the contact. We need the context and everything to know what it's all about. So, what is it all about? Let me give you the context, believer. The context for us in the church age is the church, the local church. There is no context for us outside of that. We are the body of Christ, placed in Christ. He is the head of the body. We are the body. There is no context outside of Christ. None. Christ the local church. That's it. That's it. You say, well, you know, I know Christians that do church well on their own. No, they don't. You can't do church on your own. You can't do it. You need to look at the one another commandments in Scripture. You can't do one another commandments without one another. There is no context, I'd say, to the, the church. The local church is everything. Everything should be done in and through the local church. They say, well, Pastor, what about these organizations, these parachurch organizations? They're all well and good. But it has to be through the local church or to help the local church, to draw alongside the local church. That's what parachurch means. Para, to draw alongside. They're meant to help the local church because the local church is God's design. Everything outside of that is man's design. You say, well, I know Christians that have been very successful in terms of they've handed it this or they've done that, but they just they don't agree with local church. I'm sorry, but they don't have the context right. Whatever they're doing isn't God's thing. It's their thing, dressed up in a God thing. You say, oh, that sounds harsh. I don't really care because the context is local church. It is. It is. That doesn't mean that we're not have personal evangelism. That doesn't mean that we're not to be about the Lord's work as we, you know, aren't gathered as a body. But it means that the local church is primary in all these things. That's our context. That's how we define ourselves. That's how we define our work in everything we're to do. It's about the local church. But the problem is we live in a, in a postmodern world where we want to, we're a society where we want to take everything that has come down through the ages and rip it up and redefine it and revise it to suit our postmodern world. We're doing that with history. We're doing it with, uh, you know, education. And what people are doing it with the local church. You know, the local church, well, that's an old institution and it's not fit for today. The local church is fit for all days of the church age. It is the context in which we live. The local church is God's vehicle for the Great Commission. We're to die to self. That's the great call of the Great Commission. But the great champions of the Great Commission is the local church. It's the local church. But we live in this subjective world where YouTube defines what biblical Christianity is. No, the local church. The local church. Oh, I get my teaching from the internet. That's not the local church. God didn't give the internet when he commissioned the church. He gave pastors, elders, people within the church body He put the institution of the local church together. It is his body. It's our context. Not the world. Not the internet. And I appreciate that some people just can't get to local church. There's none around them. I understand that. But they are not, uh, they're the exception to the rule. They're not the rule. The rule is local church. And local church is a community. It's a body. It's a collection of believers who gather together, who assemble together 
to be about God's work, to build one another up. But you can see, even in saying that, when I say that church is a community and it's about the local church, how that is anathema to it's all about us. But the thinking that it's all about us keeps us from local church ministries. It does. And the world wants us to buy that lie. And the local church is being attacked all over the place. Not from without, from within. Oh, it doesn't have relevance today. Oh, we live in an internet age. Nonsense. It's God's plan. That's our context. Just like we had the word kite that enabled us to get that paragraph together and understand it. If we don't understand that it is about the local church, we're not going to understand how we're to operate, how we're to function, and we're not going to fulfill what God wants for us. We're just not. It's about the local church. It's about the local church. Fortunately, the local church is under attack. We are the body of Christ. When Christ came to earth, he came to a body prepared for him. Hebrews 10.5 tells us that. When he left this earth, he prepared a body for him to do his work. And the phrase were his hands and his feet. I don't know if I'm thrilled with that particularly, but I get the point. We're here, we're it. It's all about the local church. It's not about us. It's all about the local church. But what gets in the way? Pride. Pride brings us back to it's all about me. And the local church gets put down the pecking order. And we have to we have to be on our guard against pride. Absolutely. Spurgeon said this about pride. He said, Do not desire to be the principal man in the church. Be lowly, be humble. The best man in the church is a man who is willing to be a doormat for all that wi- to wipe their boots on. The brother who does not mind what happens to him at all, so long as God is glorified. You want an attitude like that, you have to realize that it's not about us. But it is about the local church. It is about the local church. And thirdly, and finally, I want to say ultimately, it's about the Lord. It's about the Lord. Yes, it's about the local church. That's the body. But it is about the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle, some say the greatest Christian that ever lived, he knew this. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Paul knew this. He was in no doubt about this. Philippians chapter number 3. Here Paul lays out his testimony, as it were. Let's begin in verse 4, Philippians 3. Here Paul says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he whereof he might trust in the flesh, I am more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousnesses in the law, blameless. So here Paul lays down his credentials. And they're mighty fine within Judaism. Then he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me all this personal 
stuff gained to me. It was about me. Those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Verse 10, that I might know him. And I love the order of this. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul knew that it wasn't all about him. He knew it was all about the Lord. He said, all those things which were gained to me, I counted them loss for him. And verse 10 says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Notice what he says. Paul says this often. He says in, I think, Corinthians, he says, I preach Christ and him crucified. Christ first, crucifixion after. Here he says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Before he gets to the benefits, he wants to know him because of who he is. Who he is. And that's where we should be with Christ. We have benefits of being known by him. He saved us, set us apart. He's given us a resurrection body one day. We're going to be glorified forever. These are all benefits. But we should ever live in the presence of just knowing him. And the privilege to know him. Paul knew it was all about the Lord. The greatest Christian that walked this earth possibly knew it was all about the Lord. He says earlier, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Often we think there Paul's talking about the resurrected body. He may well have that in view, but personally I think knowing Paul here, he knows that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. He wants to be with him. So Paul knew it. Turn to Revelation chapter number 5 for me. Heaven knows it. Heaven knows it. Revelation chapter number 5. I love the book of Revelation. I, I really do. And I say this often when I'm reading it in just a, a message that it comes into. There, there are books in the Bible, you know, that have great power to them. But I think the book of Revelation, when it's read, has a, has a power and authority to it. There's such a majesty to it. Because it is all about him. It's his unveiling. It's his revealing. That's what Revelation is. Greek apocalypto. It means unveiling or revealing. Revelation 5. Let's read from verse number 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written with seals within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. That book is the title deed of the earth, if you like. That which was lost by our first parents, by Adam. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? 
And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. All is lost. Humanity is lost. There is no redemption. No man is worthy in heaven or on earth. John's response, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Verse 7, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, the four and twenty elders, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Paul knew it was all about the Lord. Heaven knows it's all about the Lord. You know that Christ is the centerpiece of heaven. Heaven is Christocentric. It all revolves around him. The eternal praise, the eternal glory is of him, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you get into Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah has the vision of the Lord lifted up high and holy. That is Christ there. You can reference that. I think it's one of the Gospels, Matthew possibly. I'm not sure. That's Christ. And Christ is to be magnified in our lives. It is all about him. Anybody here own binoculars? There's a few. They still exist. Do they still sell binoculars? They do. So tell me how binoculars work. Who has binoculars? Right. And tell me how binoculars work. What do you do with them? Right. So what does it do for the, the image that you want to see? Yeah. Yeah. We could say it magnifies it. Right? What happens if you put the binoculars around the other way? What happens to the image? Does it get magnified? It gets minified. Minimized. Minified. <laughs> Minimized, right? So let me ask you a question. What way are your spiritual binoculars? <laughs> have you got them the right way round? Because if you have them the right way round, you will see Christ magnified and you will understand it's all about the Lord. But if you've got them the wrong way round, if you think it's all about you and it's not about the local church, you've no way to get those binoculars round and to be in the right place. And the image of Christ, the picture of Christ, the vision of Christ in your life this morning will be minimized. 
And he'll be distant rather than up close. Now God came down once to rescue sinful man. It's not his job to come closer to make that minimized image bigger. It is our job to understand that it's all about the Lord. To get our spiritual vision in the right way. And walk closer to him. Have our eyes upon him. So that he would be magnified in our lives. It's all about the Lord. It's all about the Lord. And when we realize this. We'll live in this state of worship. And praise. And thanks. For what he's done for us. And who he is. Our lips will be lips of praise till our dying day. Story told of an elderly Christian man. He was a fine singer. He loved to sing. And every day that he could. He would be about the Lord's work. Singing for the people of God. But he was told that he had cancer of the tongue. And he had to go and have surgery for it. And on the kind of pre-op briefing, the surgeon said to him, you know, I heard you're a singer and you like to sing. And the man says, yes, yes, it's it's been terrible, but hopefully this will fix it. And the surgeon says, I'm sorry to tell you that after the surgery, you'll no longer be able to sing. The man's head went down. Then he put his head up and he said to the doctor, I've had many good times singing the praises of God. And now you tell me I can never sing again. I have one song that will be my last. It will be of gratitude and praise to God. So there in the doctor's presence, the man began to sing one of Isaac Watts' hymns. Some of the words go like this. I'll praise my maker while I've breath. And when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler power. My days of praise shall near be past when life and thought and being last or immortality endures. That man knew it was all about the Lord. The Apostle Paul knew it was all about the Lord. Heaven knows it's all about the Lord. My question this morning to you is, do you know, do we know that it's all about the Lord? And you say, yes, it's absolutely all about the Lord. Well, let's move back. Is it about the local church? Because if it's all about the Lord, it has to be about the local church also. We are his body. He instituted it. He will guide it and build it and lead it. He is our head. So if it's all about the Lord, it has to be all about the local church. And if it's all about the Lord and it's all about the local church, guess what? It can't be about you. So to say it's all about the Lord... Is that being reflected in your life before him? Folks, let me leave you with this. The world doesn't have an answer to what it's all about. But the word of God and the people of God should. Number one, it's not all about us. That's the great call of the Great Commission. Go ye therefore. Pick up your cross. Be a disciple. Count the cost. That's the great call. 
It is about the local church. We are the great champions of the Great Commission. We are the ones that have been commissioned as a corporate body to be about God's work. And that's a privilege. That's a privilege. God is good. But a good God wouldn't leave us here in this world for any other reason than the mission he's given us. He doesn't leave us here with no mission. Otherwise, I firmly believe he'd take us straight to heaven because he's got good, good God. But we're here for a purpose. We're here for a purpose. It's about the local church. We're the great champions of the Great Commission. And then finally, it's about the Lord. He is the great Christ of the Great Commission. He is the head of the body. He is the one that we are to love and live for. And when we do that, when we do that, we will die to self. We have to. That's the call of God. And we will live for him. And we will understand it's about the local church. Beloved, we should know what it's all about. And shame on us. Shame on us if we live like a world that doesn't know what it's all about. And we have the answers in the word of God and through the spirit of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for time again in your word. Lord, it is indeed all about you. Because it's all about you, it is all about your local church. You've said in your word that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we're your body. I pray, Lord, you would help us to see that. Lord, we speak out against legalism. This is not enforced. This is not something we do to earn favour with you. Paul says this is our reasonable service. This is the least that we could do. Lord, I was speaking with those Jehovah's Witnesses this week and I do pray for them, Lord, that anything that was said would touch their hearts. But they didn't have a a no-so salvation. They didn't know what the future would hold for them. Their only answer was to do their best. And Lord, I just felt sorry for them. Lord, that's legalism. But we've been set free from that. And because of that, Lord, we should live for you out of love and devotion, but yet we cast it to one side. We are the people that have the truth. We're the people that know what it's all about, and yet we just fling it to one side. Like it's not important, like you're not real, that you're not in charge, that you're not sovereign, you're not worthy. Lord, I pray that you would help us, each one of us, to get our spiritual eyes focused again upon you. And Lord, when we do, we we, we serve you out of love, but Lord, you just bless us. Not that things are easy, but Lord, you bring us to a place of peace, happiness and joy, not manufactured happiness, Not manufactured joy, but true joy. 
from you. So Lord, I do pray for each and every one of us. Pray even this day for those that are fasting and praying before you that we would earnestly seek you, Lord, and ask you to search us and help us change, mold us and shape us, Lord. Whatever it is we need to cut out or change, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to do that, that we would do it willingly, lovingly. Lord, I pray you would bless us. Challenge us as your people. Whatever we need. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's close with uh, our last hymn. What grace is mine.